If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, this is Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Tudor Dixon Podcast, part of the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton Podcast Network. Welcome to the Tudor Dixon Podcast. I'm Tudor Dixon, and it is great to have you tuning in to the podcast. My guest today recently wrote a piece in The Federalist that caught my attention. It caught my attention, obviously, because of my recent election, but he wrote about the nonpartisan dark money groups Democrats are using to overtake Michigan elections. Now, I've been trying to tell people all about this, but conservatives don't seem to be hearing it and they don't seem to be getting that elections have changed. We need to change with them if we're going to win. I'm going to say that again. We have to change what we're doing in elections if we're going to win because Democrats have changed what they're doing. And so that's why I'm really excited to talk to my guest today. The same old groups that you support right now in the conservative movement, they're just not cutting it. They're not cutting edge. We're going to learn about that in this podcast. We're going to learn about what the Democrats are doing. And hopefully that means we're going to learn about what we need to be doing. So I would ask you, if you are donating to groups that say they are going to win elections, have them specifically tell you, what is your plan to win that election? What will you do on the ground? What will you do to reach people? You need to fully understand what they're going to do. And I want you to fully understand what the other side is doing. And that's why I'm joined today by Sam Lair. He is a PhD student at Hillsdale College right here in the beautiful state of Michigan. He's studying political theory and statesmanship of the American founding. Really, Sam, I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm so excited to talk about this because I'm serious. It's been something that I've been trying to tell people, we need to change the way we're doing elections but you have the deep dive into what Democrats are doing specifically in Michigan. So I want to get right into that. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about it. So first off, I want to talk about this group, Voters Not Politicians, which I think we have to give credit 
where credit is due. I mean, that sounds really very focused on voters. This sounds very nonpartisan. It is just something that's going to come out and help people to figure out what they need to do. But they've actually become quite a large group, haven't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you said, one of the great things that the left is good at is uh, marketing. You know, you hear something like voters, not politicians. And you're like, oh, yeah, I prefer a voter over, <laughs> over that corrupt politician in Lansing or D.C. Um, but really, they're, they're not representing the interests that they say they are. Um, you know, voters, not politicians started um, after the 2016 election, um, supposedly by this young recycling activist named Katie Fahey, uh, spell check on that name, pronunciation. Um, but, you know, she supposedly sent out a Facebook post talking about how she wants to tackle gerrymandering in the state of Michigan. Um, you know, cause she was distressed by the election results and supposedly went viral. And from there, her star grew and other people latched onto her and they built this massive from the groundswell up of grassroots, you know, participation of the electorate. And the, they overturned the conservative tyranny that exists in Lansing. Um, but if you dig a lot closer into what's going on there, um, some of the things are a little bit sketchier. Obviously, you know, they come off as nonpartisan. That's the thing they like to claim. Um, but if you look at who their board is, you know, they're mostly Democrats. If you look at what their platform is, they only support a Democratic platform. There's only one party in this country that wants direct democracy, whatever that means. Um, if you look at their finances, that's what's really disturbing. And, you know, you mentioned the dark money groups, um, you know, and, you know, the first eye popping thing that came out to me about them is they re received $250,000 from Eric Holder's uh, National Democratic Redistricting Group. You know, that's kind of a strange thing to accept from a nonpartisan organization. <laughs> um, but even more disturbing is the fact that they've they're really funded and, you know, propped up by these massive whales of dark money organizations like uh, these organizations tied with a group called Rebel Advisors. Um, the Rebel Network is what it's called. Um, they have various networks and corporations that are tied to them. So, so that is something that I want to dig in. I've, I've, it's been called Arabella to me. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation or not, but the Arabella Network. So this is really, this is a whole new way of doing elections, but this is, this is what the Democrats have been focused on for years and we haven't really realized it. And I think the testing ground for this was really Colorado. And so they, they looked at Colorado and they said, this is a red state that we believe has, has holes that we can punch into and then expand and, and take it to a blue state. And we need a donor network. So if I'm right, Arabella is their donor network. It's filled with donors, organizations. They kind of pool that money and decide where they're going to go to have the biggest impact. Is that how you interpret that? Yeah, there's a few of these you know, organizations. Um, Action Now Institute's another one that's ran by a, you know, a big liberal donor couple in Texas. Um, but Arabella Advisor seems to be, that's a corporation that's an actual company that exists in dc and so it's how their structure work is so nebulous and strange it's amazing to me that it's legal and they probably have a gajillion lawyers you know to make sure that it is but so they have this for-profit company owned by this guy named eric kessler um former clinton administration official and former field director for the league of conservation voters that one advises other major liberal donors on how to spend their money at the same time, this corporation, for-profit corporation, runs this conglomerate of nonprofit 501c4s that do all of this lobbying and advocacy 
uh, like I like I was saying, you know, 1630 funds, one of the big ones, but they've started to receive heat. So they've uh, created a new one called North Fund. So that one's become popular as well that they've been funding a lot of money into. And I think they have three or four other ones. And it's estimated, you know, it's hard to tell with current finance laws, but it's estimated that they have a war chest of about 1.6 billion. And really, any it's a good chance that anytime you see a left-wing ballot initiative showing up in your state, whether it be Michigan or Colorado or Montana, this money is going to be behind it in some way, shape or form. So what people need to know is that a ballot initiative is very expensive and you can end up spending millions of dollars on a ballot initiative. But people, the Democrats do it because it's effective. If you look at the state of Michigan, marijuana was a ballot initiative that brought out a lot of voters. But that also provides a starting point to go out and and bring in grassroots, to bring in people. And then you had in 2022, uh, the abortion amendment. And so that was also incredibly powerful in bringing out people and voters. And they're picking these on purpose. So they're they're willing to spend the money to get the ballot initiative out there to make sure that they can do the campaign around that. And so I think what people need to understand If you are trying to figure out what Dems are doing in elections and why we are losing, when we talk about a C4 organization, this is a not-for-profit organization that is supposed to be essentially educating you on issues. But this is this can educate you on issues against someone or for someone. So they can be going out and putting out mailings that say, so-and-so is going to protect your guns or so-and-so is going to take your guns away, or so-and-so is going to put guns in your school. The All of these messages can be done through these organizations. And we're talking about $1.6 billion. I think in the 2022 or then the 2020 election, the total spend across the political world was $16 billion. So we're talking about 1.6 in just this one organization that can go out and turn votes. I mean, they're really, these operations can go anywhere from just getting the message out, which could be text messaging, which could be ads. It could be TV ads. It could be YouTube ads. It could be ads on your websites. It can be mailings, but it can also be chasing ballots. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, one of the other major things is uh, where this is tied into is they do a lot of voter registration drives early on in a campaign cycle. Um, I first discovered this when I worked for the Trump uh, campaign in Nevada in 2016, and then for Senator Dean Heller in 2018. I was always running into this group called Next Gen America. Mm. I'm like, who are these guys? I'm like, this like, and then I found out it was uh, the brainchild of this uh, liberal billionaire, Tom Steyer, his kind of baby that he created. And, you know, it's another one of those nonpartisan organizations. And I was always competing with them for voter registrations. And this is something that voters, not politicians and all these groups do as well. So when they have a ballot initiative or a campaign or an electoral cycle that they're trying to deal with, um, they'll spend the first part of all of this just going out and registering voters in mass. Um, you know, in Michigan, you know, this is a how effective this is is you know is questionable because of the automatic voter registration. Right. Um, but in somewhere like Nevada, where you don't have automatic voter registration, motor voter, you know, that could really swing an election. That is what I want to ask you about, because in Michigan, that's not a, a effective because essentially everybody is automatically registered to vote in this. And I think it's easier now. And that's one of the things that you mentioned in your article is that the goal is to make it so that 
it is as easy for the Democrats to play this game as possible. And then you never get another Republican in and they ultimately have the system to win. We are so far behind in the system that we essentially can't catch them in time if we don't really start working on this. But I hear people all the time that are like, you know, look at this group. They're out registering voters. And that's the answer. That is just a tiny, tiny part of what we have to do, because the registering voters is simply the beginning, is it not? It's the beginning because, you know, you register the voters and then you have this base, you have this volunteer base. Um, but then on top of that, you know, they have access to the absentee voter list role that every other campaign has. You know, so uh, coincidentally, when all of the absentee voter lists get sent out, they have the ability because of their master volunteer base to go out and, you know, be there and ensure that people turn in their absentee ballots. And, they, you know, they can inform them about the issues at that very moment, which is an interesting loophole. You know, in every state, you're not allowed to electioneer, you know, at a certain distance from the polling. You know, right. You have to be 30 feet or, you know, 50 yards or whatever it is. Um, but that's not a protection that we extend to absentee ballots. So, oh, you know, whether yeah, it be that's interesting. Oh, very yeah, interesting. So, so whether it be a Democratic candidate, you know, campaign or whether it be voters, not politicians, you know, they can find they find out who has these absentee ballots. They can go to their door and they can do their civic duty to make sure that they're properly informed, you know, and they they can't fill legally. You know, they can't tell them who to fill out, you know, but uh, if coincidentally they're there and they vote for that ballot initiative or they vote for those candidates or they receive a convincing piece of literature um, that helps sway their vote, then, you know, they're just performing their civic duty. And these are the sort of things that we're encouraging now, especially after 2020. You know, we view these nonpartisan organizations as these enlightened, you know, people that just care about our sacred democracy. that want to make sure every vote gets counted, um, but they never talk about which of those votes are. Um, and that they're only ever from one side. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this is how you see something like a Pennsylvania happen, which I think people were shocked that John Fetterman won. They're like, this is not possible. This man is not even capable of putting a sentence together. How could he possibly win? This is what I hear over and over again. Even when I'm listening to the news, uh, the right of center news or even mainstream media, they're, they're like, why do we not see Democrats out there campaigning? You don't need to campaign as a Democrat if you have these organizations on the ground going door to door. But also, I mean, they're not just going door to door. They use technology for this. They're getting them through text messages. They're getting them with little videos. Little videos are showing up on their phone. They have mailings going to their house. This message is reinforced constantly with these people. So so the Democrats have figured out that it takes about nine times, nine voter contacts is the average to get somebody to agree with your issue. And then you have to get their ballot in. So in the state of Pennsylvania, you have a lot of time to get a ballot in. Now, Michigan, you can actually vote early um, and you also have the absentee ballots. So how do we combat this if they have these organizations? I mean, we're talking about uh, let me just put this into perspective, because when you talk about the voters, not politicians, this is a group that had in 20 the 2018 election cycle, 16 million dollars. And in our entire campaign, I think we got to a, maybe a little over 20. This is a group that can just do what they want in the entire state. We are looking at Michigan, and I think about over $90 million came in for Democrats in 22 and less than 30 for Republicans. How how do you fight this when you have organizations that are so wealthy? And, and this is not even we haven't even gotten to the organization up in Traverse City yet, because I know we we sent that to you and talked to you about mm -hmm. the undocumented organizers up in Traverse City that they had nine million dollars. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's one of those things that it's, it's gotten so large that it's hard to even, you know, know when to begin to how to address it. Um, you know, part of it has to do with you know, the outcomes of Citizens United, um, you know, conservatives spent a really long time thinking that we're always going to be, you know, the party of big business and big money. And now we're not in a lot of ways, you know, with, yeah. with woke capital becoming a thing, um, we have to deal with the bed we made. Um, and, but, you know, beyond, you know, the, the fascinating topic of a voter finance or electoral finance law, um, 
I think there's a really big issue in regards to how these people market, which we talked about earlier. You know, part of the reason why they have this bona fide that's able to be, you know, persuasive to voters is because they get to market themselves as nonpartisan. We're not with the Democratic Party. We're not with the Republican Party. We're only here to support democracy. And we're only here to help this one issue, you know? And I think if you forced transparency and you forced these people, you know, to really show their cards and you can't hide around this, you know, facade of, you know, if this was a corporation, if this was a for-profit corporation, this is Coca-Cola doing this, saying that, oh, we don't have sugar in our Coca-Cola, but clearly they have sugar in the Coca-Cola, you know, they would get hit with, you know, a false advertising lawsuit. So are you saying that you think that C4 should have to be to, should have to disclose where they're getting their their money from? I think so. I mean, I think they're already governed um, in a lot of ways in the same way that normal corporations are. I mean, a corporation's a corporation, whether it's a 501c3 or 4 or whether it's a for-profit corporation. You have to go through more or less the same process and in a lot of ways you're governed by the same laws. Um, so we have to find a way to uniformly enforce the laws to ensure that these loopholes for these social welfare organizations, that's their technical term for the IRS, um, where they're not able to leverage that and abuse the system and really subvert our constitutional process and really disrupt and forced reforms that wouldn't be possible in any other way. But we know that that's not going to happen before 24. This is going no. to be <laughs> a huge problem in 24. And and I do not hear Republicans saying they're going to do this. I keep hearing people say we're going to do the same thing. We're going to put, put money into the same organizations that have not been winning elections for the past four years. And I, I do think that we got distracted after 2020. I think 2016 was shocking to the Democrats because Donald Trump truly did bring out people that had never voted before. There was an anomaly there. That is not going to happen again. They've figured it out. After that, they doubled down on this in 2018 and said, it's never going to happen to us again. We were sitting back thinking everybody loves us. And then 2020 happened. And 2018 happened. People said, oh, it's a midterm. This always happens. It goes to the other side. 2020 happened. There was all the rumbles. Oh, the, you know, that it wasn't fair. This was stolen. We got distracted away from actually seeing what was happening. In 22, we weren't prepared because we were distracted by the rumblings of something that was not the real cause of why we lost 2020. So how do you get Republicans and Republican donors to engage in the idea of doing in enlisting people in the ground game? They used to make fun of Obama for being a grassroots organizer. Turns out that was the key. This isn't the best thing to say for a, a soon to be person on the job market, you know, but <laughs> conservatives have to realize that conservative ink, um, they're old men in a young men's game, you know, they're not, they're not hit upon, you know, all of the new things that are going on. Uh, and, and, and actually, you know, let me qualify, you know, 51C4s are not new, you know, League of Conservation Voters and League of Women Voters and, you know, all these organizations have existed for a long time. It's what they're but, doing. Yeah. But they know, you know, they know how to organize. I mean, the left at the end of the day, since 1900 has been a party of activism. They were the party of unions. Then they were the party of civil rights. Um, now they're the party of, you know, LGBT rights and so on and so forth. You know, so they have grassroots organization in their blood. 
But now they have technology behind that. And that's what I think people are missing. And that's what I want to dig down a little deeper into this because these groups, they have apps that will tell them, okay, these are all the people that will be getting their absentee ballot today. And then they send out people that are very well organized to these people's homes. And they say, you can turn your ballot in today, right around this corner. And the person says, I'll have it in on Thursday. Their app on Friday morning tells them to go to that person's house, check to see. They keep going back until they get that ballot. They also continue to use AI to drill down and micro-target these people. Okay, they're going to they're gonna accept this message and that's going to get them to get their ballot back. They are really into the business of elections. We are still running elections. Like this is a popularity contest and you're going to come to our rally and then go vote. That's 100% right. You know, I have a... Uh... Having worked for the RNC, you know, to the RNC's credit, you know, they have their data and they have, you know, the technology and they, you know, they're trying to create these grassroots stuff, but we, we haven't been able to replicate it. You know, that, this is the hard point, hard part. Like I said, the left and the Democrats have been the party of grassroots organization for, you know, 120 years. So they have a leg up. And so we can't just look over at their homework and copy it word for word, right? Because we don't have the same voter base. We don't have unions. We don't have the a- AFL-CIO and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you have to find a way to mobilize the voter base in a conservative way. And I think Trump, to his credit, found a way to do that, you know, and a lot of candidates have, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and finding that mix in between borrowing the tools of our opponents while at the same time retooling it to a way that's effective for conservatives is, is really the question that is moving forward. But we also need to keep in mind that we have to find a way to cut the knees out of these organizations that are forcing us to lose now. So, you, you, you know, hmm. conservatives think it's usually one or like, oh, we just we just organize or if we just fight these organizations. No, you need to do both of them simultaneously. And you need to put, you know, you really need to be, you know, in two places at once, putting your all in both of these fights. Well, let's talk about the RNC fight, because we obviously had a, an election at the RNC, and this was um, mostly between Harmeet Dillon and Ronna McDaniel. And there were a lot of people that were very emotional about this. If you're in the political world, if you're outside the political world, you may not have heard much about it. But if you are inside the political world, there was quite a bit of controversy over what is going to happen and what, you know, a lot of blaming the RNC. But when I look at your article and when I look at the groups that are effective on the Democrat side, I do not see the DNC. I see these organizations that are supportive and coming around. And I think people forget that the RNC is not going to be in your local state house election. They have their own lane and that is a a federal lane. So I think that there is also some confusion or maybe passivity of sitting back and saying, well, we've always, you know, the RNC should pick up everything. But that's not possible. We're And we're a very large country and we have many states that look at a lot of different ways. The Democrats, I think, are good at saying this state will accept this and this organization can thrive here. We need support organizations as well. Don't you think or am I crazy? No, uh, you're 100 percent right. You're preaching to the choir right now, not to get, you know, too <laughs> academic about it, you know, but, you know, Parties are a relic of a time where we still had party conventions and we still had nominating conventions and we still had, you know, all of these things that made parties work, patronage, party dues, you know, all of these things. Um, You don't really have those anymore in a political party. Uh, You know, no one is going over, you know, very few people are going to their local Republican meeting and the people that do go are usually not, you know, 
the most mainstream conservatives or the people that are really going to donate. They're the people that really have nothing else to do. And so you don't have the incentive base for it, you know, the carrots and sticks that makes a political organization effective. And the way you do 501c4s, 501c4s, in my opinion, are the political party of the future. You know, they do the mm -hmm. get out to vote drives for the DNC, as we mentioned. Um, they have patronage. They can hire you as their door knocker. You know, they can get you, you go work for one of these organizations and there's a billion other organizations that exist out there for people amongst the left, to, you know, to run their careers. You know, there's yep. the, the backbench of leftist organizations, you know, not even just, you know, think of, start naming all the mainstream ones that you can think of off the top of your head. And it, you can go on for 30 minutes and now go on and start to out every single one of those local groups or state level groups. And you'd be counting for, you know, the rest of the week. Well, you said something key here. You said they can hire you for a door knocker. And I think that's something that we have also on our side, not caught up to. They're really paying people. The reason they're raising all this money, they're paying to get the job done because they see it as a business expense. So when it comes time to get door knockers, they're paid and they're actually in many cases paid based on performance. We have door knockers. I know in Michigan, our door knocking operation was not robust. Our door knockers were sometimes knocking on the same doors. They were just getting a list. There wasn't a way to get feedback back. They weren't getting paid. They were all volunteers. The C4 organization, I mean, we have some some information. We we have something to learn here because I think it is our responsibility to say the RNC can only do so much. What am I going to do to raise the funds and to create the organization that can stand on maybe just one issue, but still stand well? Yeah, I mean, this is a major debate point that goes on in the RNC now, you know, whether we need to focus on, you know, what's called the neighborhood team leader model, which the Obama campaign used in 08 and 2012 to a lot of eff efficacy, or whether we need to focus more on paid people. Um, you know, and there's issues with those, you know, with both of those models. Um, but, you know, as you intimated, I think the key is, is the paid door knockers, you know, and that doesn't mean you go, you know, pick up a homeless guy off the street and then, you know, pay him 20 bucks to go harass <laughs> your neighbors. You know, it means you get a young, smart conservative that lives in, that goes to college, who's aware of the issues, who understands what time it is, and you can, you know, talk them up on what the issues are, you know, polish them intellectually and hone their skills, you know, and then train that person to go and be an effective door knocker. The thing that I think the left is good at, which helps them, is that they're passionate about these issues. They really do believe they're saving democracy by taking down gerrymandering. Yeah. And you don't always see that sort of enthusiasm amongst the right. Let's take a quick commercial break. We'll continue next on the Tudor Dixon podcast. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. We've done a lot of research and a lot of people have told me recently that this current generation coming out of college today, their passion is to be a part of something, to be an activist in some way, to feel like there's some calling that they have. And oftentimes it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that they have historically been passionate about. They can get sucked into something to have that excitement of being an activist. And we're not doing a great job of meeting those people, finding them and having them come out on our side. But I think that we have so many really smart issues to tackle right now. Right now, the the fact that we could go after safe communities, let's have safe communities, such a, a common sense idea. I mean, it's a fundamental of government that we're going to provide safe communities. And we have missed with young people on that. That says a lot about what we're not doing. I mean, even family values, economy, these issues that are so common sense, we've missed on these issues and we've let the left just move into this place. So I think that what you said was key that we have to be fighting back against their machine and seeing if there's a way to kneecap their machine but that doesn't mean we don't have our own machine. No, oh, yeah, exactly. You, we need to find a way to replicate what these people are doing and use it for conservative causes, like you intimated. You know, the nuclear family, family values. Um, you know, we're quickly becoming the party of the middle class and blue collar workers. You know, how are we going to do that? You know, how do we get into those places um, and into those electorates? And the only way you do that is through organizing. You know, you need to go and talk to your neighbors and you need someone to make the case intelligently. And, you know, like you said, you need nine voter contacts, you know, to make your point to someone. And, you know, one of those has to be you see, you know, the sign on your neighbor's porch. And then, you know, you get the text message and then you see the commercial, you know, and then it gets you thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get a knock on your door on Sunday morning and you see hopefully a well-dressed, intelligent young man or woman who can articulate the issue to you and make you go, oh, wow, you know, that I didn't think about it that way, you know, and that's the cherry on the top. And then you have that voter. If I can talk to one thing really quick, you know, the RNC, part of the issue of how the the right does grassroots organization is they're really concerned with just blanket numbers. You know, there's like you need to go knock, you know, a gajillion doors. And for someone who worked for the RNC, you know, you get tired, you know, you're you're working 60 hour weeks and they're so focused on just the number of contacts and just making that contact. They're not concerned with actually making convincing that voter 
about the issue. And that's the thing that we really need to be focusing on is how to defeat the advantage that the left has in marketing and show the people what these things are. Take abortion, for example. So what would you say? Yeah, yeah it, it, it go through what you would do at, at, from a marketing standpoint. I mean, so take abortion, for example. That's that's one that we've lost on in Michigan and a couple other places, you know, and you can't do, you know, in a really extreme position. But if you go and you market to people, you know, if you ask, what's your opinion on abortion in five different ways? Do you support Roe v. Wade? Most people will say yes. But then if you ask, do you support a heartbeat bill? They'll be like, no, I don't support a heartbeat bill. Then you ask them via weeks, do you support abortion after 12 weeks? And the majority of people say no, and they have no idea that all three of those things, like the heartbeat thing and the 12 weeks are actually the same position, being for Roe v. Wade and being for against abortion after 12 weeks are antithetical positions. So you right. So you have to find, you know, and you can do this on a number of myriad of issues. You know, I personally think that the nuclear family restoring and educating about constitutional government being the party of the middle class are our major winning issues. And like I said, educating a smart young, you know, outfit that can go out there and make that case to voters nationwide at the local level is the key to win. You know, you have to take these tools and you have to retool them. It's pretty simple. You know, I mean, easier said than done, you know, but the playbook is is sitting right there in front of us and we're being defeated by it every single election cycle. What do you say, just really quick, I don't want to take too much of your time, but for the people who are still stuck on, we have to go back to voting in one day and then we'll win and we have to stop them from bringing in ballots and all of that. What is your response to that? Because I, I think that that's living in a dreamland. Yeah. I mean, one thing I always like to tell people is that we need to get out of the infomercial idea of politics. You know, this one quick fix is going to solve all of democracy's problem, you know? And if we just do this one thing and then all of a sudden we're going to win and we're going to be Reagan's shining city on a hill and we'll go back to the 1980s or whatever it is, you know, there's no such thing as a quick fix in politics. You know, these are systemic organizations. Um, I have a professor, Kevin Slack, who talks a lot about the long march of the in through the institutions of the left. You know, this has been burgeoning on below the surface has just been now starting to spill up for the past 60 years, if not more than that. So it's going to take time. But you, that doesn't mean that we're defeated. That doesn't mean there's not wins to be made. But it does mean that we need to reorientate ourselves to a modern idea about politics um, and focus on ways that we can actually win. You know, yes, we need re elect Republicans. Yes, we need to point out blatant voter fraud where it exists. But, you know, let's not put all our eggs in one basket. And then when mm -hmm. the court case falls through, you know, sitting there with our hands in our pockets being like, oh, well, the court case didn't win. You know, guess there's nothing else we can do. I think that we have to remind people that I don't think there's ever been an election, a big election that the court has said, yeah, I'm going to overturn the will of the people. The court wants the will of the people to go through. And so we have to figure out how to win at election time on election day, you know, we, we need to figure out how to win and not try to go back and fight those battles because that's simply not going to work. I had so many people afterwards say, why aren't you saying you want a, a legal battle and you want this and that? I mean, that just is, it's not something the court wants to do is to overturn an election. No, it's not. You know, at the end of the day, the court is going to maintain the status quo, especially amongst the right. You know, you have 
you know, unfortunately, the activist judges are mostly on the left. You know, you have in Wisconsin this past time, a judge running on overturning abortion, overturning abortion, you know, restrictions in the state, which I think is obscene, you know, but we just, but we have to accept that we don't have those sort of judges on the right, you know, and so the only right. way we're going to win is in the ballot box. And yes. we have to accept that we're fighting in a system that is structurally positioned against us. We need to find ways to be creative, you know, to be competitive. And that doesn't, and that means getting out of the framework that this is still the 1990s or the 2000s. Things have changed and we need to adapt with time. Oh, I, I love talking to you and I could probably talk about this for another hour. I I would love to have you back on sometime as we get closer to the election and we see some of this happening. I think the message that I want people to know is all is not lost. I mean, I know this sounds a little <laughs> bit dark because we're saying we've got to change what we're doing. That's the opportunity. We now know that we did something wrong in 2020 and 22. We have an opportunity in 24 to change that. So talk to the folks that you know are, activi are activists or are are putting together a C4, give to those organizations if you feel like they're going to do this work on the ground, but ask them what they're going to do to get there. I think that's been something we've been blindly giving to groups that haven't necessarily been doing that on the ground. And I want to see people really doing that. Sam Lair, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It was a real pleasure. Um, I'm glad that people are starting to become aware of this issue. Although I sound pessimistic, I am actually truly optimistic. I think that, you know, once you identify the problem, we have the ability to make actual effectual change in this country. And so I hope that people, you know, hear this message and think about really the way that they can be participate in, you know, our republic and help to get in the good fight and push the ball a bit more further for, you know, the values that this country was founded on. Absolutely. I, I thought all Hillsdale grads are optimists. I thought that's like a requirement. <laughs> it is. Yeah. You know, you, it's a, although it's kind of hard, you know, once you read, a, you know, Aristotle's psycho regime, and you hear about, you know, you compare that to where we are now. It's sometimes it's hard to be optimistic, but, I, you know, I'm doing my best. Well, thank you. Thank you again for coming on. And thank all of you for joining us on the Tudor Dixon podcast for this episode and others. Go to TudorDixonPodcast.com. You can subscribe right there or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you always join us on the Tudor Dixon podcast. Have an awesome day. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.